welcome to Epiphany Fellowship's podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. Amen. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isn't he worthy to be praised this morning? Amen, amen, and amen. Excited to be here. Uh, excited to be with uh, some of our folks in the building this morning. Y'all look good. It's good to see y'all. Haven't seen some of your some of your faces in a while, so it's good, good to see you uh, here. And for all of those joining at home or wherever you are virtually. Uh, we're excited that you are with us as well. Um, some of y'all sat down. Some of y'all still standing up because y'all know how we do. It ain't been that long, people. Come on now. Go ahead and stand up so we can read God's word together. Uh, meet me in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 as we can continue in on our Greater Than series. Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning at verse 19, we're going to read down through verse 25. I'm going to read it for us this morning. Is everybody there? Amen. Amen. Here's the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. And let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works not neglecting to gather together as, are, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Today, I just want to tag our text. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Father, we are thankful uh, that we get to come before your throne with boldness where we might receive grace and mercy. Use your servant this day to preach truthfully about your word and allow your people to receive it by your grace, for your glory and for their edification so that we might be provoked to loving good works for the furthering of your kingdom. So we just pray that you would meet us in our time today. Oh, Father God, we pray in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen and amen. You may be seated. On June 24th, at about 1.25 a.m., a 12-story beachfront condominium in the Miami suburb of Surfside, Florida, partially collapsed, resulting in the tragic deaths of almost 100 people. 
If you've been paying attention to the news stories and, and, and read any articles, you would have heard the harrowing stories of families narrowly making their escape through darkness and, and rubble, down stairways that were once tucked away in the centermost part of the building that are freshly exposed to the night air. You would have heard the chilling 911 calls as residents woke up to what they thought was stable ground under their feet now splitting apart. Or seeing the images of a small few who somehow survived such a dreadful ordeal being pulled from the rubble. What transpired there was both tragic and sobering. And we don't know why exactly the building collapsed, but in 2018, three years prior, a consultant found what he would describe as alarming evidence of major structural damage to the concrete slab below the pool deck and abundant cracking and crumbling of the columns and the beams and the walls of the parking garage underneath the building. Some have said that this should have been a red flag, but unfortunately no real research was done to get to the root of the problem. And unfortunately, it wasn't until two and a half years later, after that consultant's report, that the Condo Owners Association helped to set in motion plans for a $12 million repair project. Unfortunately, those plans began far too late. However, no matter the reason for why the building decided to collapse at the time that it did, we have here an example of the danger that can transpire when you fail to act on the information you've been given. The end result, catastrophe. And the pastor here wants us to know that we've been given some information that is necessary for us to heed. Namely, that access that we've been given to God through Jesus mandates both a personal and corporate response. I want you to hear me this morning that the access that we've been given to God through Jesus Christ means something for you personally and for us corporately. As we get to verse 19, the, the pastor writes and the way that he writes, he's letting us know that there's a cumulative rhetorical effect created with this, saw, this long sentence that begins in verse 19 that expresses the intensity of his appeal. That this passage as a whole contains an important marker for us that indicates that the author has come to the end of a major moment in his argument. This passage itself, verses 19 through 25, it, it forms the close of an argument that began in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Remember that chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 was called an overlapping transition. It was the end of an argument that began in chapter 3, verse 1, but the beginning of this new argument that began in chapter 5, where he would begin to talk more in depth about the high priestlyhood of Jesus Christ. And so this passage here closes off that section and lets us know that there were some things that he said between chapters 5 and chapter 10 
that should draw our attention in. And so he begins, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness or confidence, he state this, states this as an absolute fact that what Jesus Christ has done and who he is, there should no longer be any reason why believers don't approach the throne of grace with confidence. He says, if, if you've been paying attention to what I've been saying, if you've been listening in on who we've said he is himself as the great high priest and what he has accomplished through his blood, then there should be no reason why you can't approach his throne with confidence. The picture that he's giving is, an, is this open invitation that exists for all believers who can come into the holy place that's no longer just reserved for the Levitical priesthood. It's, it's, it's the idea that those who are called brethren in chapter 3, verse 1, have access to the throne of God. He's describing the most fundamental privilege that God's people now have, with his, which is authorization for entrance into the most holy place by the means of his blood. He says, since we have boldness to enter through his blood, he has inaugurated for us or opened for us a new and living way through the curtain that is in his flesh. That underlying Greek term for inaugurate has been translated both inaugurate and consecrate. Inaugurate reminds the hearers that Christ has established something totally new, something that didn't exist before. But then consecrate prevents them from forgetting that what he established access to costs nothing less than his blood. And so he says this new and living way that has been given, that has been uh, now freshly given to you, that's given you access, is brand new, meaning that it did not exist before. That, that this way that you now have to God did not exist prior to when Jesus just did. And that it cost him something. It wasn't free. It was consecrated through his blood. And he calls it new. He calls it living. He calls it fresh. Because unlike the old covenant, this new and living way won't become antiquated or out of date. It doesn't get old. He calls it living and new because this living way actually leads you to the presence of the living God as opposed to a dead end. He says, he says that this new and living way it, 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 it's through the curtain or the veil. And in, in Hebrews chapter 20, I mean, chapter 6, verse 20, the veil was representative of the barrier that made it, that made it impossible for mankind to approach God. There was something in our way, right? And I, I don't know if you know that, but you haven't always had access to God. Uh, prior to Jesus Christ, and if you're listening to me and you don't know Jesus Christ, there is something blocking or impeding your relationship, your communication, your understanding of God. He says, he says but, but because we've been given a new and living way through his flesh, the faithful hearers of today can approach God and find no barrier. Because what was once closed 
is now wide open. And, 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 and the thing about it is, the, the, thing, the thing about it is, is that he's not contrasting an old way of access to this new way of access. He's contrasting this new way of access to no way of access. He, he's not saying that the access that you have today now is different than the access that you had prior. What he's saying is that the access that you have now didn't even exist, which is why it was inaugurated. It's new. So he, he, he then goes on to say, verse 20, he says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, right, he, then he gives us some exhortations. He says, our, 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 our great high priest over God's house has provided access into the very presence of God. And, and since we have boldness to enter, come before, approach, and since we have a great high priest who's provided this access, then it means something about your responsibility to respond based on what you now know to be true. Meaning that if you now know that you have access to God and that you have access to God through a high priest, then you can't sit on your hands and not do anything about it. See, that, that's the great thing about relationship with God is that, that, that God, God initiates that relationship. He often initiates that activity. He does things for us that make relationship with him possible that we could not have done on our own. However, at the same time, he still holds you responsible for some things too. Because this is a working relationship that we have with God. Now, when I say working, I don't mean you can earn anything from God. I, I, I'm not saying that you can earn his favor or earn salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that God doesn't do everything for you while you do nothing. So he says, because we have both, since we have boldness, since we have a, a high priest, he says, it's only a priest, uh, appropriate that the pastor begins this exhortation by urging his hearers to draw near. And so he says, let us draw near with a full heart and assurance of faith and the heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. So he says, this, 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 this drawing near describes a continuous and regular drawing near through prayer and worship because what he's trying to communicate is that life in God's presence is the essence, the means, and the end of the existence of the believer. Meaning that you need to be in the presence of God regularly. But guess where you'll be when this life is over, if you know him? In the presence of God. So both now and for the rest of eternity, our whole existence as the people of God is tied to being in his presence and so listen so essentially you could say you better get used to getting in the presence of God now because if you don't like being in the presence of God now you're not going to enjoy eternity so we gotta we gotta we, we gotta 
we got to get there. And the, the manner in which God's people are invited to draw near is described by two prepositional phrases, with a true heart and in fullness of faith. And, and, and the hearers have already seen in relation to the, the wilderness generation, which, which the author, the pastor, has brought up numerous times throughout the writing of this book. He, he, he's seen that the, the wilderness generation is described as having an evil heart, which by definition is a heart of unbelief that turns away from the living God in disobedience. But here, he, he says, draw near with a true heart. A heart that is not only sincere, but a heart that is attuned to God and ready to obey him. Attuned to God and ready to obey him. You, you know, the, the, in the life of the believer, the hardest thing to do uh, is to actually attune yourself to God and obey him. And what do I mean when I say attune yourself to God? That means that you need to know what God desires. The only way for you to know what God desires is for you to know his word. It's striking to me, given how much access we have to his word, how little of his word we actually know. And yet you propose to know his desires without knowing his word. But then they're ready to obey him. You know, ready to obey him. All this means, to obey God, all that means is that you can put into practice in the moment what you've read in his word about how he desires for you to live. Now the hard thing about that, like we talked about last week, is we like sin. I don't need you to say amen. I know it's true because I get all the counseling calls. We like sin. Sin feels good in the moment. Sin is easier to deal with in the moment. It's harder to be patient in the moment than it is to be angry. It's harder to have self-control than to give in to what you want to do. Sin is, sin, is, sin is hard because we enjoy it. But he says, he, says, he says the true heart, the heart that is attuned with God when we draw near is a heart that desires to obey him and wants to obey him and knows enough of God's word that, know, that we know what he desires so we can actually put into practice by the help of the spirit what he says he wants for us to do. It's a heart that's been examined by the word of God and thus a, the person with a true heart can live with a robust confidence in God's promises for the future and a sturdy reliance on his power to sustain us in the present. You know where a lot of sin comes from? Our lack of trust in God. We don't, we don't trust that God can handle the future. And in the moment, we got blinders on so we can't always see what God's doing outside of that. All we see is our situation. And so, so you know what we do? We take things into our own hands. Because what I'm saying is that I trust me to be able to take care of this situation more than I trust God. God's taking too long. 
God ain't put enough in the bank account. God ain't getting rid of certain people out of my life. He didn't give me the job I wanted, the husband I wanted, the kids I wanted. So we start to take things into our own control. But he says, he says that, that not, not only do you approach with a, 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 a full heart or a true heart, but also in full assurance because, he says, uh, of faith. He says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. And so the pastor begins to use some of the imagery that we see in Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah chapter 31 where Ezekiel promised that God will sprinkle them from all their iniquity and with pure water and give them a new heart. Remember, he says, I will take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And so he begins to use some of that imagery because what he's pulling on is the reality of how our relationship with God is different and how approaching God and being able to be attuned with God comes from having a new heart. And so here he's, he's, he's giving us a visual image of what being regenerated looks like. The type of regeneration that allows us to have the type of communion with God that's necessary for drawing near. And he says, not only sprinkled, heart sprinkled clean, but our bodies washed in pure water. So this, 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 this perfect tense of these of these verbs refers to a past act of purification that remains valid and enables the worshiper to enter God's presence, meaning that it was already done for you, but still carries with you into the present so that it still applies when you draw near. It says this sprinkling from an evil conscience recalls what he has said, contrasting the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice with the sprinkled blood of an animal. Remember, we talked about that, 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 that the sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, because of his blood, was different and superior and better than any animal sacrifice. And the washing of the body that was required before entrance into the true most holy place echoes the fact that Aaron had to wash his whole body, Leviticus chapter 16, before he could enter its earthly prototype, meaning that the sacrifice of Christ has moved this language from the realm of strictly ritual purification to that of personal transformation. Transformation of the heart expressed in changed conduct of the body. Let me, let me see if I can make it plain. Let me, we talk about transformation. It, it's, it means to undergo change that is irreversible. Y'all seen a caterpillar? You know, a little caterpillar, like, you know, a little furry bug it, crawling all over stuff, and, 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 and eventually it, it makes a cocoon for itself. It, 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 it wraps itself in, in a cocoon, and if you wait long enough, you'll see it begin to hatch out of the cocoon, and what comes out of the cocoon does not look anything like what went in to the cocoon? It's no longer this little bug with little legs. It's got these big, beautiful wings. And what used to be restricted to crawling now can fly. 
because it's undergone a transformation that is irreversible. I bet you've never seen a butterfly turn back into a caterpillar. What about, what about a tadpole? You know, the little, little things in the, in the little water. You see the little pond, little lake, little body of water. You know, they're swimming around. It's usually a bunch of them. They're just swimming around. They got a little tail, little tiny head. And then they start to grow. They start to undergo a transformation. And this thing that all, only has a tail and a head begins to grow legs. And eventually the tail disappears. And what could only swim can now hop. What had to stay in water can now go on land. Because it's undergone a transformation that makes it completely different than what it used to be. And a frog cannot go back to a tadpole just like a butterfly can't go back to a caterpillar. Christian, what I'm saying to you this morning is that there has been a transformation that should have taken place in your life. When you went from unredeemed to blood-bought that transformed you in a way that you can't go back to what you used to be. Things you used to like, you don't like no more. The places you used to go, you can't go no more. The people you used to roll with, you can't hang with no more. It's some things about your life that should have changed you in such a way that you can't go back again. It's a transformation. Transformation. And then he says, he says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope, he says, without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. He said the, 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 revelation, the revelation of God's faithfulness has reached a climax in the high priesthood of his son. That means that God's people can have the most certain guarantee that if they persevere, if they continue to hold on, they will receive what God has promised. Essentially, he's saying faithful obedience is the only appropriate response to divine faithfulness. He said, if, if you keep holding on, just, just hold on a little bit longer. So if you can hold on to hope without wavering, you can have confidence that he who promised will bring it to pass. Because he's already shown you his faithfulness, and the climax of his faithfulness to you was what he did through his son on the cross. And if he was faithful in that regard, what else won't he be faithful in? If he's faithful enough to save you, what circumstance is he going to leave you in? What? Where? When? Why? How? So we can have confidence that he who promised is faithful. That he's a man of his word. I like that song. Y'all thought I was going to sing it, didn't you? That's my jam, though. No, I'm not going to do that. Not this morning. Amen. But he's, he's faithful. So he's, he, says, he says, let us draw near. Let us hold on. And then he says, then he says, then he says, let us watch out. Because he says, he says, when he says, let us draw near, right, there's, there's a sense in which communally we were all drawing near, but you, you got to draw near individually, right? And guess what? 
as much as we can hold on to hope together, I can't hold on for you. Right? But, but, but now we get to an exhortation that requires the interpersonal relationships that all of us have to do together to one another. And so he says, let us watch out or let us consider one another to provoke love and good works. Now take careful note. He, what he's telling us to do is to take careful note of each other's spiritual welfare that expresses itself in attentive, continuous care. It means that Christians have a high calling to care for one another and stimulate one another's spiritual and moral growth. And such mutual concern in turn creates and sustains a community conducive to perseverance in a hostile world. But notice what the pastor does. The pastor draws his hearer's attention first to their brothers and sisters rather than to the act of provoking. Because he says, I, I want you to care for one another, to watch out for one another. Before you provoke somebody, I want you to actually love and care for them. I'm not going to talk about the fact that a lot of us like to provoke people without actually loving and caring for them. But then try to cloak it in love, cloak it in care, cloak it in concern. So he draws his attention to the brothers and sisters. But he, but, but, but he says this, this love and care is not just mere sentimentality, but it's an orientation of the heart that expresses itself in appropriate action. Right? That, that, that it leads, where does it lead to? He says that it leads to good works, which are the opposite of the dead works that Christ saved us from. And so the pastor's hearers, he tells them in, in chapter six, back in chapter six, he, he, he credits them because he said that they've been practicing this conduct already. But he tells them, to continue encouraging one another in this behavior, for it is the full expression of the community of life that's appropriate for God's people. And what he says is that loving one another will not just happen. So he draws the hearer's attention to the fact that they must have a care and love and concern for one another, but he also says that this love doesn't just happen. Sometimes it needs to be worked at, even provoked. Uh, uh, this word provoke is an interesting word. It, it, it has with it a view of incitement that could mean to stimulate or irritate. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me give you an example. We, we recently bought a, a, a new wash machine, new wash machine, you know. And, uh, you know, before we had one of, we had one of the old Jones. Um, they got that, that big thing in the, in the middle. You know what I'm talking about. You know, and I always felt like it was in the way of the clothes. You know, or if you got ball shorts and they got the string on it, they always get wrapped around the middle. And you got you to, gotta, like, nobody got time for that. Nobody got time for that. Right? But I, but I, remember, I remember the old wash machine. And when we moved, bless God, hallelujah, we were able to get a new wash machine. 
right? And, and, and I, didn't, I didn't get the front-loading washing machine because I, I just had a thing. I feel like the water going to just bust out the front, even though, you know, it's just something about that. I'm like, that don't seem like it just works, like water on the side, just banging around. So I got, I got a top one still, but it was newer. It was bigger. It's got, the little, it's got the little digital, you know, lights on it. You can turn the oh, everything is tough. I, I love it. And, and you pour all the detergent in beforehand, and it just uses it. I ain't got to do it every time. Oh, talk about efficiency. But, but I, I got this new wash machine but when you open the lid and you look inside that little thing ain't there it's just open I can fit more clothes in it and so I began to wonder like oh so why that thing ain't there and 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 and, and I remember being at Lowe's where we bought it from and I'm asking God I'm like where so where's that little thing why they take that little thing out in the middle I don't even know what it is but but I know it moves when the washing machine moves. I figured it had a purpose. I just didn't know what it was. But he said, he said you don't need that anymore. And he, he, we looked inside. And he said, said, look down at the bottom. And at, when you look at the bottom, there's a, there's a, little, uh, a little thing that, that raises up from the bottom. And it's got, it had these like four or five little bumps on it. I call them bumps, but they're a little longer, you know, something. But they bumps uh, to me. But they got these little bumps on them. And, and he, said, he said, look down. He said, that is called the agitator. And when, you, when the wash machine gets turned on, it moves back and forth and agitates the clothes to shake the dirt off so that the detergent and the dirt will have to friction against each other to break loose some things that don't belong on the clothes. I, I, I'm just here to tell you that you need some people in your life to shake you loose from apathy. You, you need some people in your life to shake you loose from laziness. You, you need some people in your life to shake you loose from neglect because some of us are coasting through Christianity with no care in the world as if it doesn't matter. You, you, need, you need some agitators in your life and, and you need to stop villainizing agitate true, godly, agitators. You need to stop villainizing them as though they're your hater or though they're your enemy or though that they out to get you that all church folk is judgmental. Like you, like you stay away from the church judging the church for all the things that you do on a regular basis. Thank you Holy Spirit for keeping my tongue just now. But you, you need people in your life that see greater in you because of the gospel, then what you're living. You need some people in your life that care about the holiness and righteousness that is seen by the watching world. You need some people that care. So this, this new economy demands mutual concern on the part of the members of Christian community. It says they must stir up each other's religious affections that results in the good work of the ministry. There's purpose in that stirring up. You, the more of us as believers that are stirred up, guess what, the, guess what that produces? Not only in the community of faith, but in the world. Love and good works. He says, he says, but there are, he says, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. And it stands to reason that 
there can't be any provocation to love unless suitable opportunities occur for the stirring process to take effect. That's just a fancy way of me saying, can't nobody love you and stir you to good works if you ain't here. But guess what, it's not just one way. Because some people aren't gonna get stirred to love and good works if you ain't here. Because again, it ain't just about what you get. Some of us just want to be stirred, but ain't trying to stir nobody else. Listen, in this equation, you the drink and the spoon. You stir and get stirred. He says, but, but you can't do that if you're not present. And when I say present, I don't just mean physically present. I mean emotionally, spiritually. I mean actually active in the life of the body. Some of us think because we showed up a couple times a year that we active. You don't serve nowhere. You don't go to a small group. Your marriage is a wreck, but you don't come to no marriage stuff. Your wife is getting on you about your manhood, but you ain't never at Numanity. You're always talking about, about salt, and you ain't got no women who can pour into your life, but you always got something to complain about. Listen, I, listen I'm, I'm going to keep it real today. Complaining all the time, but you ain't never here to take advantage of the means of God's grace and discipleship that are available in his church. But, but guess the text sees this as a form of abandonment. It, it views it as you abandoning the church and God's people. But guess what? That, that, but, but when you abandon the church, you deprive yourself. You think you're saving yourself from something. And all you've done is made yourself an easier target for the enemy. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, be sober-minded and alert because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone, anyone he can devour. And lions don't typically focus on the pack. They focus on the young and the weak that have strayed from the pack and left themselves vulnerable for greater attack because there's no one around them for safety. You know what it's like? You know, when, 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 when people, because uh, you know we like the church hop too. We don't stay nowhere long, especially once people get to know us. You know what I mean? Like really know us, right? Because we like to go to the, to the new exciting ministry across the, the city that we can be a part of. You know what I'm saying? And so all we do is church hop around and, and find the new fancy thing and, and then we call ourselves being on mission, being on mission, being on mission. You, you, you going 
everywhere and nowhere at the same time. You, you, you know what you like? You like a good fireworks show. You know, fire, fireworks are loud, colorful, big, explosive, but they vanish in an instant. They're exciting, but they don't last long. Listen, the, the excitement of what's happening can't supersede the need for you to have some staying power. That's necessary when the excitement is no longer there. I, I'm, I'm going to leave that alone. He says this was a habit of some because this had become an issue in the church, in, in this gathering, in this local assembly. Uh, and there were many reasons why people could have been abandoning or neglecting uh, the faith. But what he's saying is that it's essential that you don't. Because there are dangers and difficulties that come from you not being in community. And so then he says, instead of doing those things, encourage each other or exhort each other. It, it means this, this, this word, exhort or encourage, uh, has a full range of meanings where it could mean rebuke, warn, encourage, or even comfort. And he says one, one of the things that we have to do to irritate one another is we've got to warn each other. You've got to be willing to listen to warning. You've you got to rebuke each other. Some of us need to know how to receive a, a rebuke from a friend. We need to encourage one another and comfort one another in seasons of difficulty. And he says, he says, and all the more as you see the day approaching, meaning that their lives as a community of faith and the way that they interact and relate to one another must be done in light of Jesus's return. That his return is on the horizon. Like, like, like the imminence of that day when Jesus returns, right? For them, it was not, a, it was not some secret idea that they talked about. It was not something that they kind of held secretly. But, it, but, 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 but Christians were to live as if the dawning of the day was so near that its arrival was just beyond the horizon. That even if centuries have passed, the possible imminence of the day still supplies a powerful motivation towards high moral standards for many believers. If you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you change? That's what he's saying. He's saying, you, you need to be living like Jesus is coming back at any moment. This is what he's, this is what he's, in, he said, this is, this is one of the things that helps us to instigate or provoke one another is the reality that he could return at any time. And what's beautiful is that it's at this intersection where warning 
and hope collide, that motivation is birthed for the purpose of perseverance. Because guess what? At Jesus' return, there's both hope and warning. There's hope for us who believe that his promises are true, and there's warning for us who wallow and need to get it together. He says it's, it, that it's, on the, it's at that day, when we live in light of that day, there's both a hope and warning that should move us towards perseverance despite what we are going through. So the pastor, as he lays out this section, just lets us know. He says, he's, he says we have a boldness to enter the sanctuary. And, and since we have a great high priest, let us draw near by faith with a heart full of assurance. Let us hold on to hope without wavering and let us watch out for one another in love so that we might provide good works to the watching world and to one another in light of his coming return. And so all, all of that, the pastor saying, he's saying this, when we talk about the priesthood, the high priesthood of Christ, the, that Jesus is our great high priest, what, who he is and what he's done, you as a believer have a responsibility to draw near, to hold on, and to watch out. Father, we thank you, God, for your word today. And we pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness to live in light of your return. That in your return, we both find hope because we know that when you come back, all of those who belong to you, you will take to our heavenly home. And we will be in your presence for eternity. But it's also a warning for us to be on guard lest we fall. So God, I pray that as we provoke one another in love, that we will be motivated to continue to persevere by faith because of what you accomplished on the cross in light of the access that we have to the throne of grace. So be with your people, oh God, today. Help us to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called so that we might give your name all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we think about that day, that day when Jesus will ultimately return. What comes to mind is the promise that he gave to the disciples when he said that he would not drink again of the fruit of the vine until he does it anew with us in his kingdom. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which has been broken for you and as often as you do this do it in remembrance of me take let's eat together afterwards he took the cup and he blessed it and said this is my blood which has been poured out for your sins and again as often as you do this do it in remembrance of me let's drink together People of God, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We pray you've been encouraged by God's word, encouraged by through song, encouraged through giving, and that you would continue to hold on, to draw near, 
and to watch out for one another in love. Grace and peace. We love you. We'll see you next week. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder and pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you. We love you.